All right, this is part two of chapter 15, and you wonder, is this going to be a two-part, or is this going to be more than two parts? And the answer is more than two parts. So this is probably, <laughs> no promises, but I think it's going to take me one or more message to get through chapter 15 and perhaps the whole book. So this is part two of the resurrection of the body. First Corinthians 15, we're going to cover starting verse, verse 20. This is going to build on the foundation. Now, the last time we are in 1 Corinthians 15 was a few weeks ago, so I want to touch on a few things. You know, many Christians, we talked about before, many Christians believe when you die, that your, your body's done for and your, your soul goes up and you immediately go to heaven or hell. You're judged immediately and individually. That's what most Christians uh, believe today, but actually that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not how the early church understood it. The Bible teaches that there will be a resurrection of, of all on the last day, that our bodies and spirits will be reunited, and that everyone will be judged. And that's exactly what Jesus taught, and that's what the apostles taught, that where there will be a res- physical resurrection, our bodies and spirits will be joined together before the final judgment, and they will be judged together. So... This is not a doctrinal fine point. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first three verses, talks about the six things that are the elementary truths or principles of the faith, and this is one of them. Faith, repentance, and baptism, the first three. And then laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So this t- ties in with the two of the six things that are considered foundation foundation for the faith. So we better make sure we get this on straight. I didn't for a long time. It was reading the early Christians that got me to, that, that was a, a jarring influence on me, got me to go back and look at the scriptures, and particularly 1 Corinthians 15, and, and help me out. Jesus taught this himself several places in the Gospels, most notably in John 5, 28, 29, when he said, time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. So Jesus, Jesus talked about the resurrection of the dead there and other places as well. Whole, pretty much all chapter 15 gets into the details of that. And Paul said the entire Christian faith hangs on the resurrection of the dead. He says, if the dead were not, are not raised then Christ wasn't raised either. And if Christ wasn't raised, you're still in your sins, we're false witnesses, talking about the apostles, and our preaching and your faith are in vain. It's empty, it's useless, that the entire Christian faith hangs on the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Jesus. Today, we're going we're gonna to go deep philosophically, but we're going to get brutally practical at the end. So this would be, hopefully, there's something for everybody in, in the room here. So I want to talk about, first of all, the nature of being a, a human. Okay, this is, this is getting, this is, we're getting deep in philosophy. This is Christian philosophy, and fortunately as Christians, particularly those who are interested in the original, the historic faith, the faith once for all trusted the saints, Everybody wonders about these things, but we're the only people on the face of the earth who really understand what's going on. Not because we're smarter than anybody else, but because Jesus and Paul and the apostles explain this to us. So if we look and look at and understand what they're saying, 
we get a glimpse of what's really going on in the world around us. So, I have a question for you um, to start off with. Okay, we all understand that each of us has a body and we have a soul. Okay, we all understand that. Or, or is it a body and a spirit? Or are the spirit and the soul the same thing? Or are they two different things? Okay. So, and I, I'm, I'm getting some puzzled looks back at me here. Uh, most Christians, and I would include myself for most of my Christian life as well, assume that the soul and the spirit are two different ways of talking about the same thing. And so they say, okay, there's the, my body, and then there's my soul or my spirit. That there are two parts to, to, to the humans, to, to, to human being, being a human being. Okay, but actually the Apostle Paul taught that there were three parts. And you may ask, where did he say that? Well, it's not in 1 Corinthians 15, it's actually in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's turn there. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, think about what he just said there. He says... May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's mentioning three things. Now some people say, well, he's just, maybe just kind of exaggerating or using a figure of speech. The, the soul and the spirit are kind of the same thing, but he's breaking it into three. But he mentions three things there. And early Christian writer Irenaeus talks about this particular statement by Paul and fleshes it out a little bit more in, in uh, uh, book five of is against, against heresies. I may have a quote from there later on, but I'll definitely put it in the notes. So Paul says we consist of three parts here, the spirit, the soul, and the body. This body is sometimes another term for the body in the scriptures is the flesh. Okay? And he desires that all three of these be preserved blameless at the second coming of Christ. He wants all three of them to be in good shape. So, man consists of three parts, and God's plan is for all three parts to be preserved and saved on the day of judgment. Okay? Now, there may be some here in the room that are still unconvinced by what I just said from this one short verse here. Think, well, I still kind of think that, that the spirit and the soul are the same. I've thought that my whole life. Okay, I'm going to turn to a verse that for many of us will be very familiar, Hebrews chapter 4. Let's turn to that. If you think the spirit and the soul are the same thing, we'll take another look at a, at a popular passage in scripture that's right Hebrews chapter 4 some people think it was Paul but we don't really know for sure Hebrews 4 12 for the word of God 
is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and, and of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, question number one. This is the easy one. Are your joints and marrow the same thing? No. Okay. Are they closely related with each other? Well, yes. They're right, they're right next to each other. The, the, the joints and the marrow, they're both part of your bone structure, and they're right next to each other. They work together. Okay? Now, this is the tough question. Are your soul and spirit the same thing? Okay. It's, it's parallel construction. The answer is the same. No, there are two things. They're closely related to each other, but they're not exactly the same thing. That, that, that he's saying that that the the sword of of, of the spirit is the, the, the word is in the word of God, okay, which could be referring to I'm you know it could be referring to Jesus who is the living word of God, or it could be used referring to the scriptures. I've heard people explain it both ways, but it penetrates and can divide even things that are super close together to each other that are very closely related. So this is the picture is that the soul and spirit are incredibly close to one another, but they're not the same thing. Okay? So when Paul says, your body, your soul, and your spirit, he really does mean that there are three different components which we're made of. As I mentioned, the the early Christian writer who goes into the the most full explanation of this is is Irenaeus, and we'll put some some of his quotes in in the... uh, and the notes when we post these along with the audio for the lesson. So, next question, obvious question is, all right, soul and the spirit are, are really close to one another, but they're different. What's the difference? What's the difference? Now, and they say, can you show me in the scriptures what's the difference? I don't care about the early Christians. Well, I'll start off by showing you what the early Christians said about this, what some of the early Christian writers who talked about this, the three different parts and why there are three different parts and specifically what the difference is between the soul and the spirit. And then we'll consider the scriptures after hearing their explanation to say, does this make sense or not? Irenaeus in in, uh, book 5, chapter 6 of... uh, of his work against heresies, Nicene Fathers, Volume 1, page 532, talks about how our body, our, the, the, our human being is made up of three parts, and unless you have three parts, you don't have a complete person. That all three parts are necessary, that that's what it means to be human. You have to have a soul, a spirit, and a body. Two out of three doesn't cut it, all right? So you can have the whole thing. And then he goes on a little further. And he says, there are three things out of which, as I have shown, the complete man is composed, flesh, soul, and spirit. One of these does indeed preserve and fashion the man. This is the spirit. While as to another, it is united in form, that's the flesh. And then comes that which is between the two. So he talks about there's the spirit and the flesh, and then there's one that's between the two, the other two. All right? That is the soul, which sometimes indeed, when it follows the spirit, is raised up, 
But sometimes it sympathizes with the flesh and falls into carnal lust. So you get the, you get the picture here, okay? The spirit and, and, and the flesh are pulling us in opposite directions. The spirit wants to pull us up toward God. And he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spirit that each of us has. Okay, that wants to pull us toward God. On the other hand, the flesh has a little different agenda. What does the flesh want to do? The flesh wants to pull us down into all kinds of sin. Into carnal lusts of various types. And so here the soul is, and it's hearing the spirit is saying, come up here, and, and, and the flesh is saying, come down here. And the soul is between the two and has to decide which way are we going today. All right, what are we going to do? So, if you feel a little inner conflict and turmoil in your life, now you know why. Okay? The God, God put in each of us a conscience which, which informs us from our spirit which way we should go. Okay? We're not totally depraved. Even people who, aren't, who, who are not Christians and never heard the gospel, there's something inside of them. They have a spirit. They have a human spirit given by God, which informs them. And speaking in the back of their mind, unless they kill it or sear it, it's saying, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that. Okay? You really shouldn't be doing that. It tells us what's true. It tells us what's right. It informs us. Now, you may shut it down. By repeated sin, you may sear it, but you have a conscience. Everyone is given a God-given conscience. Everyone's given a spirit. By the same token, there's the flesh, and we know what the flesh is telling us to do. Origin, another early Christian writer writing around the year 225. Irenaeus writing around the year 180. Irenaeus is interesting to me because he is a disciple of Polycarp, who in turn was a disciple of the apostles themselves. He's one human link removed from the apostles. This is Origen writing around the year 225. He said, Let the reader take this also into consideration. It's observed with regard to the soul of the Savior that of those things which are written in the gospel, some are ascribed under the name of soul and others under the spirit. Okay, think about this. I never thought about this before before Origen mentioned it. He says, you know, in the gospels, when it's talking about Jesus... Sometimes it talks about his spirit, and sometimes it's talking about his soul. Think about it. He gives a few examples here. He says, For when it wishes to indicate any suffering or perturbation affecting him, it indicates it under the name of soul. As when he says, Now my soul is troubled, John 12, 27, and my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death, Matthew 26, 28, and no man takes my soul from me, but I lay it down myself, John 10, 18. Okay? So, when Jesus is talking about the distress and the, and the internal pain that he's feeling, he mentions his soul. But there are other times when he talks about his spirit. Uh, 23, 46 says, Into the hands of the Father he commends not his soul, but his spirit. When he says that the flesh is weak, he doesn't say that the soul is willing but the spirit, okay? Let's, let's look at, take, and I'll read the rest of this. And when it appears that the soul is something intermediate between the weak flesh, whence it, whence it appears the soul is something intermediate between the weak flesh and the willing spirit. So that's really the same thing Irenaeus said. He said the soul is here. It's between the flesh, which is weak, 
and, and the spirit which is, which is, is strong or is willing. Let's go back to uh, Mark chapter 14 here to illustrate that, what he's saying. You know, I never noticed this before, that the distinction between the soul and the spirit in the scriptures, but this has opened up my, my mind to pay more attention to these things. I consider the two firm terms to be the same thing. They're not. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the, the night before He was crucified. Mark 14, 32, He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about, he's talking about Peter's spirit. Peter has... His spirit is willing to. He wants to be with the Lord. He wants to pray. But his flesh is weak. He falls asleep. And he says, pray that you don't fall into temptation. Okay. Uh, the lesson today is about 1 Corinthians 15. But I think if we want to understand the flesh and the resurrection of the flesh, it really helps to understand, okay, who we are. There are three parts of us, and the flesh is part of us. That God's plan is to save all of us. The spirit, the soul, and the body. But the soul is the soul is, is being influenced by the spirit and the flesh and has to decide which way that it wants to go in life. Uh, Dave Brasso has a good lesson on what the early Christians believe about the soul and the spirit and uh, also addiction to early Christian beliefs. There's an article on... The soul, and then there's a sub-article on the, tri- the, the tripartite nature of the soul. So most of the Christian, early Christian commentators who speak about that talk about uh, there being three different aspects of, to, of our lives. The tripartite nature of man. Uh, now, what about the scriptures? Does the scriptures say anything about our soul versus our spirit? Yes, but... It's easy to miss, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why. Okay, the building we're in here, I don't know, when did this, when did, when did this, this, this building start being used as a church? Early, like 1711? 1714, okay, 1714. So this is, we're in quite an historic building here. It's, it's been around for uh, 300 years. When this building was created, okay, 1714, if you were reading a Bible, that they were reading at, at the founding of this church, the first time it was preached, be a little different from our modern Bibles in a few ways. Okay, one of them is, I had a brother who asked me, he was, he was attending the church and, and very interested in what we're doing. He said, why do you guys read the a Bibles that have these extra books in them, that my, book, that my Bible doesn't have them, okay? And, and I thought, you know, actually, you don't realize, we're reading the New King James, the original King James 1611 had the Deuterocanonical books, the Apocryphal books in it. Okay, Catholic Bibles still do, Protestant Bibles do. But when this, when this building existed, the only Bibles that they had had those books in them. So it's a modern innovation to take them out. But it was in the original King James. The other thing is, and, and I heard this, and being a skeptic, I had to go back and check it out for myself to verify it. And I'd encourage you to do the same thing. I heard that in the original uh, 1611 version of the King James, 
they handled capitalization a little differently than the modern version does, the New King James. So I went back and checked that, and sure enough, that's the case. Now, when, the, when a Bible translator is translating words into English from Greek, the original Greek manuscripts, it was all caps, all capital letters. So no capital lowercase. So it's called unseals, but basically that's the way they wrote back then. And all the words ran together. So you don't have punctuation, you don't have the word breaks, and you don't have capitalization. So when you run into the word angel, is that referring to the angel of the Lord or just an angel? I don't know if I should say just an angel. Angels are pretty powerful beings. But is it, is it one of the angels or is it the angel of the Lord referring to the Son of God? Capital or small a. The word God. Capital G God refers to the, the, uh, the, the divine. The, the creator of the universe or could, could refer to the Father, Son, and the Spirit but the God refers to that whereas the term gods could mean a number of different things okay could refer to false gods or you know in some sense it were, the term is applied to humans as well so small g gods same thing with spirits okay if you're reading in your Bible and it has a capital S spirit what do you think of? the Holy Spirit if it has a lowercase spirit, you might think, well, it's talking about the spirit inside a person or an evil spirit or something like that. So there, there, there are three different ways that the spirit is used. So it could be, the spirit can be used to refer to the Holy Spirit. It can be referred to as some random spirit that's out there, like an evil spirit in the Gospels, plenty of accounts of that. Or it could be referring to as the spirit that's within a man. Each person has their own spirit. Okay. And what happened is over time, I'm reading Bibles that, that are from the 1600s, early English translations, both the Catholic and the Protestant, the King James and the Dewey Range Bibles, and they had a lot more lowercase s's in there. Okay? And over time, they switched, and all the, every time the Spirit shows up, almost it's the Holy Spirit. So, for example, in Galatians 5, there's the famous discussion about the, the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. In the modern Bible translations, that's all capitalized S, so you think, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. This is a battle between my flesh and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Early Christians, they didn't have the caps in the lowercase, and as they're reading this, they understood it as our spirit and our flesh are battling against each other. Okay? So, it's very hard if you've been thinking one way to even consider thinking it the other way. David Rousseau says that he's known this for like 20, 30 years, and, he's, and it took him a long time to just kind of rewire his mind because every time he sees the capitalist spirit, he thinks it must be the Holy Spirit to say, no, actually... That could be referring to my own spirit within me. So, references in, in 1 Corinthians, we're reading 1 Corinthians, there are several references in there where Paul is referring to the spirit as referring to the, uh, the spirit of a person, which is also given from God, but it's not referring to the Holy Spirit. For example, 1 Corinthians 2. What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So this gives you an insight into we have a spirit in us. 
God also has his own Holy Spirit, which understands the deep things of God, which tells us something about ourselves and also something about God. So both are mentioned in that passage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. In 2 Corinthians uh, 2.13, Paul says, I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find uh, Titus my brother. So Paul talks in his, in his writings about his spirit and, and uh, uh, referring to the, or the spirit of, of a person, the spirit of a human being, the, the, a human spirit that each of us have inside of us. Now let's, let's, with that background, let's dive into 1 Corinthians 15. Let's continue our discussion. Verses 20 to 23. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Since by man came death by man, so also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So Paul's making a parallel between Adam and Jesus. That Adam was the first man and is the father of all of us, and he brought death to all. In Romans 5.12, Paul explains further, he said, through Adam, death came to all men because all sinned. Okay, so it's not, it's, it was the, the result. Adam introduced sin into all of his descendants, and death came through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. So as Adam was the, was the first who brought death into the world, Jesus is a parallel. says, likewise, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, brought the resurrection from the dead into the world. So he, was the, he started things over again. He uses this expression as Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead. We touched on that the last time together. Um, you know, Acts 26, Paul, when he's recounting the story of his conversion, and he, he says that uh, the Christ would suffer, he'd be the first to rise from the dead and proclaim light to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. He was the first, he was the prototype that, that many followed after that. Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So this is the picture. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We look to his example. This is what's going to follow. If we, we follow in the footsteps of Adam, we're going to get what he got. And if we follow in the footsteps of Christ, we will see what he received as well. Uh, so if easiest way for me to understand the resurrection uh, of of the body, the resurrection of the dead, is to understand this principle. Okay, Christ was the firstborn from among the dead. If I want to know what's going to happen to me, I look to the example of Christ. What happened to Christ? He died. He was buried. His body was in the grave. His spirit went to Hades. How do you know his spirit went to Hades? Because that's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. You will not leave my soul in Hades... Nor will let you nor will let his body see decay. That's from Psalm Psalm fifteen sixteen. Uh, 
So Jesus died, his spirit went into Hades, and then he was resurrected. Body and spirit reunited, body transformed, and his body came out of the grave. There was no body left in the grave. As it says very clearly in all four gospel accounts, there was the, the tomb was empty, the clothes were there, but the body was gone. In Luke 24, Jesus appears to the apostles and he says, Behold my hands and feet, it is I myself. Handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he ate a piece of broiled fish. Okay. So Jesus makes it abundantly clear I'm not a ghost. Okay, this isn't a phantom. I'm not a hologram, all right? <laughs> it's not a, not a, what is it, the term, the German term, a doppelganger, you know, the, the body double, it's not that, all right? He says, no, it's really me and it's my body. Go ahead, touch it yourself. I have flesh and bones. See for yourself. In John chapter 20, the ultimate example, Jesus appears to all of the apostles and for some reason Thomas isn't there. They tell him Jesus is risen from the dead. Thomas says, I won't believe it. He says, I won't even believe it if I see it. He says, the only way I'm going to believe this is if I stick my fingers in the holes in his hand. He saw him being crucified. And I put my hand into his side where the spear went. He said, that's the only way that I'm going to believe this. Right. And Jesus appears in John 20, verse 27. He says to Thomas, reach your finger in here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Okay? When we're talking about the resurrection of the dead, that's what we're talking about. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And that's what's going to happen to all of us when we are, when our bodies and spirits are reunited, when our when our souls come out of Hades, and 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 uh, and, and and we're judged, face judgment. Recall the the imprints of the nails in his hands and his feet. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. You know, it says in it's quoted in John 19, the story of the of the uh, crucifixion. Uh, they shall look on him whom they have pierced from Zechariah 12.10. And it's also a fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm, Psalm 21, 22. Uh, in verse 17 it says, May for many dogs surrounded me. This is a psalm that's all about the crucifixion. Many dogs surrounded me, an assembly of evildoers has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So this is written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus, talking in detail about how he was going to die. His hands and his feet would be pierced. I think there are multiple reasons. One is this is the branding of a criminal. He's going to die a criminal death, and that will be obvious forever. But also, this was an indelible mark to make it clear to everybody for all time that it was his body and no one else's that rose from the dead. It was actually his body. 
It also reminds me in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, and when it talks about Christ's return, his second coming, behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Okay, when Jesus comes back, even those who pierced him are going to see him. Why, why the reference to that? My assumption is, Jesus, when he comes back, he's going to be coming back in his body, and people will be able to see the holes in his hands still and in his side. Those who pierced him will recognize him. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be no question that it's Jesus. Okay? Let's continue. You know, in the movies, they have coming attractions. You know, you, if you ever go to, go to the movies, it's been a long time since I've been to a movie theater. But usually what they do is they, they, they coming attractions. They're trying to sell you on the coming back again, just watching another movie. So this is coming attractions here for what we have to look forward to. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24. I'll start in verse 23. Each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits after those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he's put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he put all things under him. It is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So Christ is coming again. He's going to deliver the kingdom of God the Father. He'll put an end to all rule and authority. Now people get all bent out of shape right now about the political situation in the country. It just says, when Jesus comes back, it's all done. It's over. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. I'm reminded of the story in Daniel chapter 2 about the four-part statue. The rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. Rock refers to Christ throughout the Old Testament. Falls on the statue, representing the kingdoms of this world. Crushes them, turns them to dust, and the wind blows them away. And then the rock that's left behind turns into a mountain that fills the whole earth. The picture of what's going to happen, I believe, at the, at the return of Christ in, in the terms of a figure. All the kingdoms of the world are crushed. An eternal kingdom that fills the earth will, st- will last forever. Daniel chapter 2 and uh, verses 31 to 45. It says that he will reign until all his enemies are put under his feet, the last of his enemies being death. He quotes from Psalm 8 here, and he alludes to another psalm. Let's turn to Psalm 8. He quotes from this one, alludes to the other one, Psalm 8, verses 4 to 7. Now look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you established. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man? that you visit him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You set him over the works of your hands. You subjected all things under his feet. 
So this is talking about, this is quoted here, you subjected all things under his feet. It's also quoted in the beginning of, of Hebrews. We're familiar from that passage there. But there's another psalm that is alluded to but not quoted. Let's turn to Psalm uh, 109 or 110, depending on which Bible you have. He's talking about all his enemies will put under his feet. I think this is this is the psalm that he's talking about that comes from. Uh, psalm 110 and the Septuagint 109, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet. The Lord shall send forth the rod of your power from Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. With you is the beginning and the day of power, the brightness of your saint and the brightness of your saints. I've begotten you from the womb before the morning star. The Lord swore and will not repent your priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So um, prophecy about Christ on many respects. Jesus refers to this himself. The Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. David is speaking. The Lord, the Father, said to my Lord, the Son. There are two that are referred to as Lord in here. And it says that the Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet. Where is Jesus now? Sit at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. What does Paul say is the last of his enemies? The final enemy to be defeated is death itself. That the grave will be emptied, the grave will be vanquished, that Jesus will defeat death, his final enemy. Amen. Of course, the passage about Melchizedek in the same, the same psalm here talks another, another aspect of Jesus is he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and Hebrews develops that idea further. But it's all about the Son of God. Let's continue. Matthew 15, verse 29. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Okay. You know I'm going there. Okay. You know I'm going there. What on earth does it mean to baptize someone for the dead? What is that all about? Are we supposed to be having baptism ceremonies where we're baptizing people on behalf of people who've already died? Vicariously baptizing people? Baptize someone in the name of somebody else? Are we supposed to do that? In 1840, in Nauvoo, Illinois, right here in the United States, a man named Joseph Smith first publicly advocated. He was preaching at a funeral and he decided to throw this in. Restoring the practice of baptizing people for the dead. 
And his followers started doing that beginning locally in the Mississippi River. And Mormons continue to do this. They did this for a while for their, their ancestors, and now they do it for all kinds of people. But they will, in their temples, baptize people for the dead because of this passage in Scripture right here. Well, have they restored something that was missing from the, from the early days of the church and, and popped up again in 1840? Are they, is this a biblical practice? Do they have it right? What's, so what's the story with that? Should we be doing the same thing? Is Paul holding this up as a good practice? You know, this we all do this. Um, I found two early explanations of this. This, this passage is hardly touched on in, in the early church, but Tertullian talks about it, and I'm aware, of, I'm aware of a couple of places where this is touched on early on. Both of them, neither one even suggests that we should be doing this, that the church should be doing, should be baptizing people vicariously for those who've died already. All right? Uh, nobody's suggesting that. There are two different explanations for this passage. One of them is that Paul is not, Paul's going after heretics here. This whole, this whole section is going after heretics who are in the church who are teaching against the bodily resurrection of the dead. So one, one early critique of this I've seen is that people are saying Paul is using their own logic to defeat them. Basically saying, look, if you guys don't believe in the resurrection of the body, what are you baptizing people on behalf of the dead for? So he's pointing out that they're, they're internally inconsistent themselves, not talking about the church. That's one explanation, early explanation. Another one Tertullian gives, he says baptizing people for the dead, and his logic is, is as follows. This is in uh, Nicene Fathers, volume 3, pages 449, uh, 340, I'm sorry, 449 to, uh, to 50, and uh, 581, 582. I'll, I'll put that in the notes. Basically, Tertullian says, what is the dead? So the only thing that dies is the body, all right? The, the, the body dies. You're baptizing people for the dead is another way of saying you're Why are you baptizing bodies on behalf of the dead? So that's his explanation of that. And I'll put that, put that in the notes as well. So two different explanations, but neither one gets us baptizing, you know, uh, finding the roles of old dead people and baptizing people vicariously for them. Uh, okay. A lot of interesting theoretical stuff. What are the takeaways? Number one, takeaway, we don't need to be baptizing people for the dead. All right? That's, that's number one takeaway. We have some other ones here, too. Uh, the body's important. The body's important. Uh, I, I ran across, uh, David Sanabria uh, handed me some references, and one of the things in there that I mentioned I thought was kind of interesting is uh, in reciting the Apostles' Creed, which is an early ancient statement of faith in the church. When people talked about, I, you know, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Spirit, I believe in the church, and I, said, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, he said what they would do is they would touch their bodies when they said that. Okay? Now think about 
you know, kids in, in, in little kids' classes and kids' songs, they had to make hand motions. You know, the rain came down and the floods came up. Well, that's what they did when they when they hit that when they hit that part and, and they believe in the body. They touched their bodies just to a little reminder. Okay, you're in this too. You're going to be resurrected. Just to a little a little physical reminder of that, which I thought was pretty cool. All right. Our bodies are important. We are made up of three parts. Our soul, our spirit, our body. And God's plan is to save the entire man. Okay? Not just our soul. Not just our spirit. Major takeaway right there. Uh, there's a picture... I read in some early Christian writings, and I don't remember exactly what it was, I'll put it in the notes. A picture of, of the human being is like a chariot and a horse. Okay? So imagine a, imagine a chariot and a horse going down a mountain road on the edge, you know, right near the edge of a cliff. Alright? If the horse goes off the cliff, what happens to the chariot? Okay, they're ending up in the same place together. So what does the chariot driver need to do? Restrain the horse. Keep the horse on track. And that's the way it is with our flesh and our soul and our spirit. If we let our flesh run wild, all three are going to end up going off the cliff. Amen. All right, We're all in this together, all three aspects of us. What is our flesh trying to get us to do? Okay? Everybody's flesh is going to be a little different, telling them different things, but I'll tell you, based on my own experience and, and over the years, some of the things your flesh might be telling you. For those who are single, the flesh is saying, wow, I wonder what it would be like to have sex with that person over there. For those who are married, hmm, I wonder what it would be like to have sex with that person over there. With that man or that woman. I wonder what it would be like to eat that food and to eat more of it. What does the flesh want? It wants to satisfy its carnal desires. Lust, gluttony, laziness. First thing when you wake up in the morning. What does your flesh want you to do? Does your flesh want you to get up and get in the Word of God? No, your flesh is saying, it's nice here. It's comfortable. I need, I need comfort. I need rest. I need pleasure. Stay in here. Okay? The sluggard is crying out. But that's what your flesh is telling you to do. It's not like the flesh is all bad. It's not like pleasure is all bad either, okay? But there are limits that you have to put on the flesh. Say, okay, okay, you want to have uh, you want to have a sexual uh, sexual enjoyment? You can have it, but here's the boundaries. It's in marriage. That's it, okay? These are the boundaries right here. You want to enjoy food? That's fine. But you can't go off the deep end. There's limits on what you can do. And your soul has to say, we're following the Spirit's lead, not yours. Paul says, I beat my body and made it my slave so that I wouldn't be disqualified. That's what he's talking about. 
And you know what one of the hardest parts of the body to keep under control is? James, this thing that keeps flapping around inside your mouth, the tongue. Okay. He says, if you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is useless. You've got to control that part of your body as well. Your flesh, what does your flesh want to do? It wants to gossip. It wants to slander. Okay? That's what it wants to do. And you've got to say no to it. In the early church, Jesus said, when you pray, he said, when you give to the poor, flesh doesn't want to give you to the poor either. He says, no, I want the hoard. I want, I, I, want, I want me, me, me. He says, when you pray, when you give to the poor, and when you fast. It doesn't say if you fast. It says when you fast. How many people in this room fast regularly? Okay. I've, got, I've, gone, I've gone on. I've gone off and I've gone on in terms of fasting uh, at different times in my, in my life. But Christians in the beginning, they typically fast twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. That was, a, that was an old custom. You didn't have to. But that was, that, was an, that was an old practice in the church. Does your flesh want to fast? No. Your flesh doesn't want Flesh says, no, let's not do that. Your spirit says, yeah, let's fast. It's going to draw us closer to God. Your flesh says, no, I don't want to fast. Don't do that. All right? You have to deny the flesh. That's the Christian life, okay? Your soul, it's being pulled in two different directions. You feel torn. It's because you're being torn, okay? But you have to make the decision. Horse, we're not going off the cliff. You have a bridle on, and I'm in control, and not you, okay? Our human spirit, given from God, is drawing us upward. There have been many good people like Cornelius. We're not just waiting around for the Holy Spirit, that they're seeking God. And, and then God reveals him to them and we receive this, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in, in us too. Okay? Our hope is in the return of Jesus and the resurrection. He's going to destroy all the kingdoms of the world that don't get caught up in, in what they're doing. And he will defeat his last enemy, which is death. And Paul says, if that's not true, we're wasting our time here. Let's eat and drink. Okay? Let's just give in to the flesh for tomorrow we die. And then there's another line in here that I don't want to pass over. He says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Okay? People think, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm not influenced by the people around me. I'm not influenced by the books that I read. I'm not influenced by the media that I'm exposed to. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself. Okay? You are. You're influenced. So what do you do? You need to decide who am I going to and what am I going to allow into my life and what am I going to keep out? What's going to influence me in the wrong direction in life? Okay? Books, media, movies, internet. Okay? All these things influence us. Don't be deceived. If you're having bad influences or coming into your life, be open with a trusted brother and sis or sister and, and talk about those things, the things that are, you're being tempted by and pull them out of your life so that you don't end up getting destroyed. 
Don't gratify the flesh. And we're doing it for the flesh is good here, okay? Say, flesh, you're not in control. You're going to get some pleasure, but there's boundaries on it, okay? And we're doing it for your good so that you can be saved along with the soul and the spirit in the end. So you've got you to say, we're in charge here, not you. We're all in this together. Amen.